What are you drinking? What are you drinking? It's a question that can be asked in different contexts. Sometimes it can be asked happily. So every once in a while, I will walk into one, two, two, and Dr. Errol Davis will say, what are you drinking? Which means free coffee and a light chit-chat with Dr. Errol Davis. Well, free coffee at least. It's a lovely offer. But every once in a while, I've had to shout at one of my boys and say, what are you drinking? I remember one day I left the garage, the shed door open, and my little six-year-old at the time walked in, saw what looked like a bottle of water to him, and began to drink it. As I saw him drink it, I realized what it was, white spirits. So I shouted, what are you drinking? I stopped him, I went to get another bottle of water, phoned a friend who was a doctor, what do I do? And as I was about to give him the bottle of water, she said, whatever you do, don't let him drink any water, right, we'll stop the water. And then my wife looked at the bottle, and it turns out we'd found a child-friendly white spirit. It was a kind of safety thing that wasn't going to kill him, thankfully. But I shouted, what are you drinking? The question, what are you drinking, can be a warning or an invitation. Now, I know some of you have heard me talk uh, before now on uh, the passage I want to look at this evening, Jeremiah 2, but I want to look this evening more deeply at it and ask the question, what are you drinking? Now, our reading was John chapter 4. I'm going to come back to chapter 4, but what I really want to open up is Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. And here we see the question being asked, what are you drinking? And really the question this evening is both a warning and an offer. Perhaps you know the background to Jeremiah. Uh, really, he had a horrendous job, a horrendous calling. Uh, the context is that the, the last kind of kings of Judah are there. The northern kingdom has been taken into captivity. They've watched that happening. And now the Babylonians are coming. Time is, is running out. They've had a mini revival under Josiah, but nothing more. Israel was, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, backsliding at this time. And in the midst of Jeremiah, we get this beautiful verse, which is beautiful because it gets the sin right to the heart. And in the warning... It reminds us of a wonderful offer. Jeremiah 2.13 says this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Now, this is a warning to Israel. He's wondering, what are you drinking? You see, if you drink the wrong thing, it can get you into all kinds of trouble. At the moment, there's a, an advert on the television that comes up every once in a while. I think it's for water aid. And it shows a child and the danger of a child going to broken cisterns, going to dirty water, showing about all that can be in that water and all of the danger that is there. Very often in the UK, we want to protect our rivers because if things get into the river source and come through our taps, all kinds of terrible things can happen to us. And here we see that the people of God were drinking dirty spiritual water. 
They'd forsaken the fountain of delight, the true water, and they had dug their own cisterns, which were broken and useless. And in a sense, their sin, that's what it was. They were two sides of the same coin. The sin was one which was to forsake the fountain of delights, but the other side of the coin was to dig their own cisterns. When I read Jeremiah and the Old Testament, just as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I can't help but see myself. Very often I look at Israel and I get frustrated and I think, how could you do that? And then I look at my own life and I realize I do that as well. And over the years, as I've reflected on Jeremiah chapter 2, I've realized how easy it is for me to fall into a, a Christianity where I too backslide, where I forsake the fountain of delights and I dig my own cisterns. Such an easy thing to do. Even in the ministry, a fully paid professional Christian working in the scriptures each day, meeting with people to pray, it is possible to go on in Christian ministry and to forsake the fountain of delights and to dig my own cisterns. And if it's possible for me to do it, then I'm sure it's possible for you to do it as well. And really, the key thing to see here is the sin isn't primarily about their actions at first, but actually about forsaking God, the fountain of delights. I love the way God describes himself there. Isn't it wonderful? He says to them, I am your fountain of living water. And you have forsaken me. Perhaps you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian and you're looking into Christianity and you might have an idea of God in your head. Can I say, if your idea of God doesn't take you to a place where you think of God as a fountain, as of living water, then, then your idea of God probably isn't right. Sometimes we think of God as someone that we have to please, and if we don't please him enough, he will never love us. That's a kind of transactional God. Actually, the Bible tells us that there is no way we can please God. We'll never be good enough for him, but actually, he loves us. He takes the initiative. He comes for us. And that makes him an absolute fountain of living water, a fountain of delights. He is the source. It all comes from him. That's what it's about. I guess there's two types of fountains in our world today. There are natural fountains, and then there are fake fountains. Looking around, I'm assuming some of you have fountains in your gardens, little fountains, I'm sure, and you've got these little water pieces which are man-made. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about natural fountains. We're talking about this, this water that bubbles up out of the ground, that comes for us. And that is the Lord God. He defines himself as someone who is a fountain of living waters. And this is what they've done. They have forsaken him. They have gone, you've given us everything, but we don't want that anymore. We don't want that anymore. I often, um, before I was married and, and had children, I used to imagine Christmas. 
I had a very romantic view of Christian before Christmas before I had uh, children. Uh, it's slightly changed now. And I always used to think that Christmas would be easy. You just have to listen to your children, find out what they're looking at in the Argos catalogue, um, and get it. And if you get the right thing, it'll all work out okay in the end. Um, but actually, it doesn't quite work like that. Perhaps you've been in this experience perhaps this has been something you've done to your parents or or your grandparents but imagine the scene imagine a family who have been looking at what their children want and and what they need and so they save and they work overtime and they go without themselves to get them exactly what they need for Christmas maybe it's a bike and so finally on Christmas Eve when the children go to bed they go and they assemble the bike and they wrap it in wrapping paper and get everything ready and on that Christmas morning, they, they hear the children get up and the little pitter-patter of the feet go downstairs and the ripping of the Christmas paper and then the ringing of the bell on the bike and the whippy and you go down all excited to teach your son to ride the bike. And as you open the door to walk in, he turns around and says, what do you want? This is my bike. I'm going to go out and play on this bike. Don't you ruin my fun with this bike. And so the little boy takes the bike outside. What happens? He can't ride a bike. You were going to teach him how to ride the bike. He's on his own. So he gets on the bike and he falls off the bike. And he cuts his knee. And you try to go to soothe him. He says, no, 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 I can do this, I can do this. And so he continues to fall and to hurt himself. And each time he falls, the bike gets scratched and the bike gets broken. And in the end, the bike is thrown to one side. The Bible says that's what we have done to God. He's given us the world, he's given us one another, and we have gone, thank you, but now we don't need you. And we've gone off in this world in our own way, doing our own thing, thinking we can make it work. And all we're doing is hurting ourselves and others more and more and more and more. And the scripture says that God is like a father who watches us. And he desires for us to be made right with him. To the point where he sends his own son into this world to live a perfect life in our place and die on the cross in our place so that we can be made right with him. And the difficult thing is even when we're Christians and we trust in Christ, there are times when we say to God, no, 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 God, I can do this. I don't need you. Perhaps this evening you're going through a difficult time You've had that test result. You're waiting for that appointment. And in your heart of hearts, you've decided not to turn to God. You're worried to turn to him. You can do this on your own. Or perhaps you're having a great time in life at the moment. And things are coming together for you. And finally, you're starting to feel a success and a happiness. And so you've left God. You were great in the difficult times, God, but now things are going well. And I don't need you. It's so easy and so subtle for the believer to forsake the fountain of living water. To go from him, to forget that he is our everything. And, and what does he do? He says to Israel, not only have you forsaken me, but also you've, hewn, you've dug your own cisterns and they're broken cisterns. You see, the reason we give up on God, the reason we don't trust in God is because we believe that we can do something better. 
We can, big, we can dig our own cisterns. And this is what he says. They are cisterns that you have dug, but they are broken. They are broken. The thing about a broken cistern is you can fill it with water and it looks amazing for the first hour. And then the water gets dirty and the water goes away. Very often, I think, we go away from the Lord, we backslide because we don't believe that God is the fountain anymore. Deep down, we don't believe that he has everything. We don't believe that Jesus is better. We don't believe that Jesus is all-sufficient. And we find something that we think is. Something gives us that security. Something gives us that satisfaction. Something gives us that status. And we dig our own wells. We dig our own cisterns. And before you know it, we've forsaken the Lord. We've turned our back on him. And we've dug our own cisterns. I wonder, brothers, sisters, is that you this evening? You're here, you're going through the motions, and I'm glad you're here. But if you're honest, God isn't your true delight. Your true delight is in your own systems. It's in what you have made. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible would refer to this as idolatry. Where we take something else and let it take the place of God. And today, those kind of idols are everywhere. An idol, really, this, this act of backsliding is where you put your security or status or satisfaction in something other than Christ. One writer puts it like this. We may not physically kneel before the statute of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incest to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. The writer says these things are subtle today. Idolatry is not as clear as it might have been in another age and in another culture. But idolatry nonetheless is there. Martin Luther put it like this, talking about these false gods, these idols, these cisterns. This is how Martin Luther put it. A god is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking you a question this evening. Is God the one in whom you take refuge? When you get home at the end of that stressful day, is it to God you turn or to a drink? When you can't get that essay done, when you can't get that dissertation title pinned down, is it to God you turn or a Netflix box set? On those times when you feel lonely and you look at other people and you think they've got it and I haven't, do you turn to God or do you turn to another person? Someone perhaps who isn't a Christian or someone perhaps whom you're not the person that you're married to. There are so many different ways that we can turn to these other gods because we've forsaken the fountain 
the true fountain of delights of clean water, the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the problem with this is it is subtle. When we read the Old Testament, I think we often forget the timescales. You know, when you read the life of Abraham or the life of Moses, you're convinced that God is turning up every two hours, the way that you read the Scriptures. But actually, it's over years and and decades these things happen. And it's exactly the same with the backsliding of Israel. You can read books like the books of Judges, and you're convinced that they're backsliding every week and a half. But it's not. It's over time. And we need to understand that sometimes we don't think we're backsliding. We don't think we're forsaken. We don't think we're digging our own cisterns because there's nothing major happening. It's nothing major. I've just befriended them on Facebook. I just think about them every once in a while. I haven't actually done anything. But brothers and sisters, as one pastor put it, backsliding... And a falling away from faith comes by a thousand insignificant decisions. And those thousand insignificant decisions happen when we don't realise that God is the fountain of living waters. That he is the true fountain. He is the one who keeps us, who refreshes us, who sustains us, who satisfies us, who gives us our true status and who gives us true security. I wonder, are we falling into functional idols? Are we going away from the Lord? Perhaps I could change the question. Is the Lord at the moment your fountain of living water? Is he the place you get your security and your status and your satisfaction from? Because that is who he is. And that is who he wants to be in your life. He has so much more to offer us. Not these broken systems. And the wonderful thing is, when you trust in Christ like that, you can enjoy all else. When you seek first his kingdom, these other things are added. But they make much more sense when they're not the thing that you put your trust in. Take, for example, a friendship. A friendship can be uh, an idol. A friendship can be something that you dig as your own system, where you look to a friend and you say, you are the person who is going to give me everything I need. And it's possible with, with a friendship. It doesn't have to even be a romantic friendship. A friendship is possible to put a person on a pedestal and say, when I'm down, you will be there. When I'm struggling, you will make me feel better. And we put these people up on pedestals and one of two things happens. Either they fall off the pedestal or they're crushed with our expectations. And the reason they fall off the pedestal is because we put them there first. When you think of the woman in Samaria in John 4, I've been thinking a lot about this passage um, over the last week and reflecting on, on this poor woman And you see the way that the Lord Jesus comes and he sees straight to the heart. She even turns to him and says, are you a prophet? You know everything. And I've been reading back through it this week and wondering, why does Jesus note the number of husbands? And here's my second question. Why does John write that down? 
of everything. When you think about it, of all the facts that the gospel writers decide to write down, why under the inspiration of the Spirit did they decide to put that number in? Now, I don't think I've got any secret exegesis this evening. You don't need to worry. But I do wonder if it's there for a reason. There to show us that this poor woman had been trying to find her security in a man. Trying to find her status and satisfaction in a man. And it hadn't worked the first time. So she did it a second time. And it didn't work a second time. So she did it a third time. And it didn't work a third time. So she did it a fourth time. And it didn't work a fourth time. So she did it a fifth time. This is the thing about us. When we walk away from the Lord and we don't rejoice in the Lord, our fountain, but rather dig our own cisterns, even when it doesn't work, we try again. We try again. Perhaps some of you this evening have been trying to find your fountain, trying to find your status and satisfaction and security in other things, and it hasn't worked, and you still don't get it's not going to work. You're on your fifth relationship, hoping that will bring you satisfaction. It will not. You're on your fifth house, thinking that will bring you security. It will not. You're on your fifth church, thinking this will be the place. It will not. It will always fail. They will always fail. They are broken cisterns. They look good for a while, but then they fail. But constantly continually throughout there's the lord the fountain of living waters there's the lord coming to us by his word as his spirit says to us come come all who are weary and i will give you living water jesus comes to us and says they have failed they have failed five times and i am here And I will give you a fountain that bubbles up to living water so that you will never thirst again. Brothers and sisters, can you truly sing as we sung earlier on, Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient? The Lord has so much he wants to give us. And he wants to be the fountain of living water. And so this evening there is a warning. Stop digging the cisterns. Stop trying again and again and again to put your hope in anything other than the Lord. But here is an encouragement and an invitation as well. The Lord is saying this evening, come to me. I know your background. I know the five relationships. I know the five homes. I know the five jobs. I know the five qualifications. I know the five experiences off your bucket list. I know the five midlife crisis. I know the five friends. I know it all. Come to me. And I will be your fountain of living water. I will be your all in all. It's a wonderful passage. Jeremiah, when you read Jeremiah... It's weighted towards judgment, isn't it? As a church family, we read through Jeremiah last month, and we've got a little WhatsApp group to talk about how it's going. The WhatsApp group, when we were talking about Jeremiah, there were days when people were going, why are we reading Jeremiah? There's only judgment. And then every once in a while, someone would say, I found something. 
I found something. The interesting thing with Jeremiah is it works very differently to modern contracts. What I mean by, by that is this. Modern contracts will tell you all the things they want you to believe you're going to get. All the good news. So you'll get this much data, you'll get this much and this much, and this is going to be great. And then you have the fine print. The fine print says they're going to take your house and everything else. Jeremiah is the complete opposite. Jeremiah says, here's the judgment. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to see this. And interestingly, the fine print, the fine print is, but ah, I do have a plan. And actually beyond this judgment, there is a plan, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. He's not just talking to an individual there. He's talking to Israel and the people of God. And he's saying, actually, a day is coming when I will come for you and I will gather all people together who trust in you. The amazing thing is this evening, brothers and sisters, there is an open invitation. There is an offer to come and to enjoy the fountain of God. For some this evening, that might be for the first time. You may have come this evening and you're looking into Christianity and you are trying to fill your life with all things and deep down you know the things that you're trying to fill your life with will never satisfy in the long term. They'll never satisfy in the long term. I want to tell you there is one who will never let you down. There is one who will forgive you for all your sins. There is one who will adopt you into his family and become your father so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. There is one who will say he will never leave or forsake you and that nothing can separate you from his love. And he says tonight, come drink. Come buy you without money. It has been done for you in Christ. Trust in him. And for the Christian who has trusted but is wandering away, is slowly backsliding, is digging their own cisterns. He warns you, but it is a warm warning. It's a warning that says, stop digging your cisterns. Come back. Come back to the fountain. Come back to me. Do you know, for the Lord to say that was hugely costly. Sometimes we talk about the Lord's forgiveness if it's just easy. I remember going to a church once and the poster on the wall in the church said this, God forgives, it's his job. No, it's not. No, it's not. God is not some kind of forgiveness machine who is created just to make us feel better. No, no, God is holy and awesome. But our holy and awesome God is a God of grace and love who in eternity decided to send the Son to die for us. That's what he did. When you read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see this theme coming out. Have you noticed it? Do you remember when um, he's looking to the cross and his disciples, instead of listening to him, are arguing about who's going to be the greatest? They want their status to be in position. And this is what Jesus says to them. Look, can you drink the cup I drink? The Lord Jesus knew that because we have forsaken the fountain of living water and we've dug our own cisterns, 
the Lord knew that there was a cup of wrath, a cup of wrath. And Jesus came to drink that cup in our place. See, the amazing news this evening is the reason we can come to the fountain of living water is because Jesus came to our world, a world in which we had ignored him and did not receive him, and he thirsted in our place. When the Lord Jesus on the cross said, I thirst, he was thirsting in our place. I find that so humbling that the one who spoke oceans into being thirst, that the one who could give water from a rock had to ask for water, that the one who could scoop the oceans into his hand couldn't reach water. And when the Lord Jesus was on the cross and he thirst, he thirst because we have dug our own cisterns and he was dying in our place. I love the way Spurgeon looks at that phrase, I thirst. And Spurgeon opens it up and says this. I think, beloved friends, that the cry, I thirst, was the mystical expression of the desire of Jesus' heart. I thirst. I cannot think that natural thirst was all he felt. He thirsted for water, doubtless, but his soul was thirsty in a higher sense. Always was he in harmony with himself, and his own body was always expressive of his soul's cravings as well as his own longings. I thirst meant that his heart was thirsting to save men. The amazing thing is this evening, the fountain of living water, who wants us to never thirst again, thirsts for us to know him. For us to find our satisfaction in him. For us to find our status in him. For us to find our security in him. That's why he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Brothers and sisters, there is an invitation this evening. Give up your cisterns. Come to the fountain of living water. I remember once travelling to the French Alps. I'll finish with this story. And I was travelling to the French Alps, and I come from West Wales, uh, which means I'm a little bit tight. And so I bought one bottle of water for the entire journey. And so I had my bottle of water that I bought post kind of check-in, and I had my one bottle of water and I went on the plane and I drank my bottle of water and I was trying to pace it. And then we got off the plane, then we got onto a bus and then the bus had to drive for hours up into the Alps. And so I had this poor bottle of water. I was trying to take my time and I was holding the bottle of water. So by the time we were halfway up the Alps, there was only about that much water at the bottom. They tell me that 78% of that was my own saliva and it was warm. It was disgusting. By the time I got to the hotel in the French Alps, just below this glacier, I was thirsty and parched, and I was holding this bottle like it was going to save my life. And I'd learned to love this bottle. I'd cradled this bottle for eight and a half hours. It had kept me going or so, I thought. And then I turned on the tap. Glacial water in the Alps. 
running freely through the taps. Do you know what? Can you imagine if at that point I turned the tap off and I just finished off my little bottle of warm saliva? Why would I do that? Brothers and sisters, Scripture says when we return to our sin, we're like a dog returning to its vomit. What did I do? I let that water flow. I put it over my face. I filled the bottle to overflowing and I glugged it down. Brothers and sisters, there is a cup that is overflowing. There is a blessing that the Lord wants to give us as we trust and rest in him and he is our fountain of living water.